Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On this podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. And as part of that, we'll literally travel around the world to do so. Today, I'm calling in from Abu Dhabi. And I'm actually coming from another desert, Las Vegas. I was there for the Black Hat and DEF CON hacker conferences. And that's why we're kicking off this podcast episode intro by phone. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Rick Howard. He's the chief security officer for Palo Alto Networks. That's an American network security company based in California. But first, we're joined by Peter Swire, with whom we recorded a sit-down before we left on our journeys to visit the world's deserts in summertime, not the greatest of ideas. He's a professor of law and ethics at the Schweller College of Business at Georgia Tech. He's also senior counsel to the law firm of Alston and Berg. And Peter is also a leading privacy and Internet scholar. In 2013, he served on President Obama's review group on intelligence and communication technology. He was also the chief privacy counselor in President Clinton's Office of Management and Budget. And maybe most important, he's a New America Cybersecurity Fellow. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Glad to be here. So you have a new paper out that Mm -hmm. connects to the challenge, I would argue, in this space. And it's entitled The Declining Half-Life of Secrets. Now, you make the case that it's almost, in your words, inevitable that secrets will come to light. And in a world where we've seen some of our deepest, darkest secrets come out, everything from the NSA to OMB to personal secrets, you know, the Ashley Madison Cheaters website was hacked. This is pretty scary stuff for people on so many different levels. So, you know, walk us through this argument of the half-life of secrets and and why you see it happening. Well, um, the whole topic came out of the work on the review group. We got briefed by the NSA and the CIA and the FBI at all the top secret levels. And one of the themes you see is that intelligence people had a history of thinking it would be 25 or 50 years before these things became public. We only learned some of the ways of breaking enigma literally 50 years after the World War II activities happened. But what if that mindset, which is we do it now, but it stays secret for a long time, had to think that what we're doing now would be public in six months or a year or two years? And I think factually that's what's heading. So the idea of a half-life is we don't know exactly which secrets will leak when. It's a statistical question. But if it used to be 50 years, now a lot of times it'll be a shorter and shorter time. So just at the level of secrets that get leaked, the CIA, uh, former general counsel was on the panel this morning, said it's gone up exponentially in the last decade. So I try to explain the information technology reasons for that. And so what are they? What are causing it? Well, part of it is is something that's familiar to people on the tech side, which is Moore's Law, which is the idea that computing power doubles every two years or whatever it is. A thumb drive holds more than a mainframe did not that long ago. You can walk out of a facility with a thumb drive. You can post things through WikiLeaks, and you don't have to have the New York Times decide whether they want to print it. But beyond that, if we think about the Internet of Things and sensors, sensors everywhere— going somewhere secretly without a camera seeing you, and then big data analytics seeing the patterns when they've done it, these technology trends really make it harder to have your activities be secret. Spy satellites now get tracked from the ground because amateur astronomers who communicate with each other can spot the spy satellite and then plot the orbit. That's a kind of looking back at the secret spy agencies that we didn't used to have. So that's part of it. Is there a culture reason for it? There is a culture reason. Um, When we were doing the review group and we asked the people in the government, was Snowden a traitor or a whistleblower? Nobody in the government 
thought he was a whistleblower. They were all on the side of somebody who was breaking the law. At the same era in Silicon Valley, over 90% of the people thought he was a whistleblower. So the gap between the government view, 0%, and the Silicon Valley view, over 90%, is enormous. Speaking of Snowden, one thing that you do focus on is the change in the makeup of the personnel within the intelligence community. So how big was a wake-up call in the intel world was the Snowden leak? Well, it's a wake-up in a lot of ways. Everybody in security has to worry now about the, the systems administrator being a rogue in a right. way they didn't before. You used to trust somebody to run the system. But beyond that, one of the changes is contractors. It used to be that people in the agencies were in there for life for 30 years. Now you might be on a project for a year or two. Now you have to advertise on LinkedIn what your capabilities are. And when you're doing that, you're actually showing to people around the world some of what you've worked on. So the changing workforce is definitely part of the sociological changes. And something interesting you mentioned earlier is the divide between the East and West Coast and how they think about secrets and their difference of opinion on Snowden. You know, is he a defector and a traitor? Is mm -hmm. he the you know, exposer of truth and, you know, someone arguing for justice? So as the Pentagon and as the intelligence community goes and seeks more talent from Silicon Valley, are you going to see people come in maybe with a different mindset than they used to come into the intelligence community? And are you going to have to balance some of these different ideologies? I think that the agencies want to have the best tech talent. They're trying to play in a very advanced game. A lot of the best talent has sort of libertarian tendencies, has information want to be free tendencies, has open source tendencies where they think the code should be open. Um, and so all of those tendencies are really in tension with government secrecy. And it's a challenge, how are you going to hire, how are you going to afford to hire, but how are you going to hire the IT talent for secret agencies when a lot of the tech culture has more of an openness kind of a default setting? And so what are some of the responses that you can make to this? I mean, one is don't do stupid stuff because it's going to come out sooner right. rather than 50 years yeah, later. Right. But, you know, beyond maybe that, tomorrow. Yeah, maybe tomorrow, <laughs> right. um, but, uh, you know, and that, that would be uh, the advice I would give to the people on the, the cheaters website. But the point is, what are some of the other things that can be done about this other than change your expectations? Well, one of the things is for agencies when they're looking at a program, so if I think what happened with Angela Merkel is this sort of example. She's still chancellor of a very big country when her wiretapping got revealed. It wasn't from 30 years ago. And so the pushback is different in kind if the secrets get revealed when the people are still there to complain about it. I think part of the answer to that is that uh, what's often called the front page test is part of the answer, which is how would this look if it was on the front page of the paper or in a podcast from Christian <laughs> Science Monitor in New America or something like that. Are officials really thinking about that now? Well, they've always thought about it at some level. But if you think there's a 1 in 50 chance of it coming out or you think it's likely to come out, you act differently. And so the risk of exposure in a short time frame is a lot greater, harder to have the secrets. And so even for secret spy agencies, they have to adjust to a new world that's not comfortable for them where more of their stuff will come out sooner. They'll need a better press response because it's going to come out and closer to real time. And they're going to need to have perspectives from outside of the fort because people inside the fort know the mission and know how they're trying to do good things. But the rest of the world has different perceptions of how this is playing. And unless the agencies are getting inputs from a lot of different perspectives, they won't know how to respond when the secrets come out. Is this, I mean, you use the phrasing the fort, referring to Fort Meade. And, and For instance, or Langley or something. None of it, right, that, yeah. That's actually the question because I've heard it phrased that 
to this, you know, front page of the New York Times um, test that it was something that the CIA, for example, was more comfortable thinking about because of the hum- the more human intelligence side of it and the, the idea that it would be people getting caught versus this is a different worldview that, say, signals intelligence takes into it. And that's one of the explanations for why the public affairs response to the Snowden uh, affair is, you know, arguably botched on the NSA side versus elsewhere, that it was their ability to talk about it, but also the way they look at the risk of something going public. Well, I think, you know, the NSA, when we did the review, we found super qualified, very motivated people dedicated to the mission of of creating, you know, safety and national security. But there were people who have a certain view who have been inside the same fort and inside the same bubble. And I think it was hard for them in this instance to see how much the rest of society had changed from 9-11 till 2013 when the Snowden thing hit. And the other part is that it was seemed very abstract. These are like computer system stories. Those aren't always historically on the front page of the paper. Yeah. A covert op that goes bad has people and bodies involved. But uh, look, you know, we're, on, we're in a tech uh, podcast show. The, the number of people looking at technology and knowing how it affects every way they communicate every minute of the day has gotten bigger. And so the idea that every phone call of Americans was being tracked in a government database, that really woke people up. How much of this is a U.S. phenomena and how much of the phenomena will strike other nations differently? Well, some of it is a continuation of trends. You know, during the Cold War, the Soviets tried to label every typewriter and not let people retype things. And copy machines were highly dangerous instruments. So we already saw, with the coming down of the Berlin Wall, a generation of change. This generation has uh, cell phones and videos everywhere. Uh, If you're Russia or Ukraine or pick your favorite country, there's going to be data and streams of data coming out of your country in ways that were different historically. The sensors that we're having here are going to be there also. Different nations will try to clamp down harder. China's clamped down on the Internet in ways we couldn't imagine here. But the pervasiveness of computing and sensors and the ability to send large amounts of data, that's going to hit all the countries. And if people aren't ready for that, they're going to miss what's going to happen to them. So that could be a good place to transition to this encryption debate that's going on now. You have senior national security leaders, FBI Director James Comey and NSA Chief Admiral Mike Rogers, who are calling on U.S. tech companies to essentially weaken their encryption technology to allow them better access, saying that the strong encryption on those devices is making them go dark and it's preventing them from catching dangerous criminals and terrorists. But you actually take a different view and you say that we're in a golden age of surveillance. So why do you think that? Well, I've been around this issue, unfortunately, for quite a long time. I I chaired the White House Working Group when we changed our encryption policy in 1999 and have written on the subject for a long time. The, The going dark idea is that previously for law enforcement or national security, they could see things. And then there's this cloaking of encryption and suddenly they can't see anymore. They've gone dark. And the the counter image, the image that I've said of a golden age of surveillance, points out the incredible bonanza that law enforcement has compared to any other time in human history. So today, ordinary people carry a tracking device for the first time in human history. We call it a cell phone. And the idea that for pretty much any citizen, you've got a pretty good sense of where they are when you go into the records is is very different. Another thing that's really helpful to law enforcement is if I know all your co-conspirators, if I know all your confederates, that's really useful. And our text messages, our phones, our Facebook friends, they show our social network. So if I'm a suspect, then the people I contact are suspects. That metadata is everywhere. 
And then the third thing is a little bit back to the previous thing. There are so many databases. There's so many kinds of data that never existed before that exist now. My bank records, my travel records, and the rest. So once I'm a suspect, for sure, the police have incredible things they never had before. On text messages, they're complaining that uh, WhatsApp or some of the other apps are encrypted end-to-end and they can't read the content. On the other hand, it turns out that there's over 6 trillion text messages sent every year. And those are 6 trillion data points law enforcement never had in history. So they gained a lot from text messages. They're complaining about the loss, and they're not really recognizing or at least talking about the incredible bonanza of stuff they've never had before. But there definitely seems to be a disconnect between business and government when it comes to priorities in this debate moving forward. How do you see the dance between, say, the FBI and companies like Apple on encryption playing out in the future? Well, I would say that there's a tension between business and law enforcement. I wouldn't say government. So I think if you worked in the Commerce Department historically, the effects on U.S. industry of weakening U.S. technology globally is not something the Commerce Department typically has been very happy with. The military in the, in the crypto wars of the 90s came to the view they needed great encryption in the United States or else they could be hacked themselves. So there's a lot of different factors in the government. Why have those voices not been as loud on it in recent months as, say, FBI has? Well, I think it's very significant that in Comey's testimony, the administration in the written statement said there are no current proposals for legislation. If Jim Comey could just go up himself and say what he wanted, I think he'd have proposals. But the other voices in the administration, my sense is, are saying, we're not at that point. You haven't made the case. And, and so that's a, really a decision that Comey is out there. He's the FBI director. He can say a lot of things. But the cleared administration position is much more cautious in this area than what the FBI has been saying. And so it's not just a U.S. issue. Can you walk us through the global landscape of this surveillance age and what are some other countries doing? I mean, you have China that's pushing for an anti-terrorism proposal that would do some of the same things, essentially. And even in the U.K., you have Prime Minister David Cameron, who's looking for more access to data within the border. So... Well, sure. You know, people who've lived through the crypto debates know that policy people want to have two different things. They want to have great access for their legitimate national things like a court order, and they want to have perfect security against everyone else. But the techies say you can't have that. And you can't have it in Britain, and you can't have it in China, and you can't have it in the U.S. So there's an aspiration for impossible things, but that doesn't mean any of the countries can get it. One of the reasons for the U.S. to stay strong on encryption in terms of cybersecurity and using strong encryption is so that we're not enabling suppression of political discussion in China, so that we're not enabling uh, surveillance of human rights activists around the world. If the U.S. becomes the backdoor capital of the world, we'll be copied by dictatorships. We don't want to be the basis for that. And what position would that put tech companies in the U.S.? And if China all of a sudden starts you know, demanding also a backdoor or that idea gains more? If the tech companies say yes to back doors to the FBI, and I don't think they're in that business right now, it's going to be very hard for them to say no to Pakistan or China or Mm -hmm. Russia or whoever else. So the U.S. is an important precedent here, and it's one of the reasons that I hope over time even the FBI will start to realize that they're not going to be able to get and shouldn't get some of what they've been trying to get. What do you think this debate looks like, say, a year from now? I think a year from now, there'll be more education by the coalition of the technology companies, the technical people, and the civil society groups. 
Those are the groups that won the crypto wars in the 90s with allies in the Defense Department and the Commerce Department and elsewhere. Law enforcement, better answers are, are not to break encryption. Better answers for the state and local law enforcement and the FBI are to get better technical tools. Most of the frustrations at the local level, I'm convinced, are not having enough good techies to help the police. It's not that they're meeting one-of-a-kind encryption. It's that they don't know how to get the text records that they could get legally. They don't know how to get the other evidence that's available. And if we spend more energy trying to have technical assistance to law enforcement and less effort breaking cybersecurity, it's a better outcome. And there's been a lot of talk about how this is Crypto Wars 2.0. But do you think that every time there's a significant advance in security on consumer devices or just as technology gets more sophisticated that we're going to be back here again in some form? I mean, is this you're going to be a Crypto Wars every five Years, well, years? fortunately, it took 15 years before this got painful again um, uh, from, the from 1999 till now. With changing technology, law enforcement gets certain advantages, like I, in my Golden Age story. They also get certain things that get blocked they used to have. Wiretaps don't work as well anymore if it's encrypted between me and you. So whenever there's a big shift in the landscape of technology, there's going to be a series of issues where law enforcement is going to want things that feel it's losing. And then the rest of us are going to want things where the FBI is getting it and they never did before. Interestingly, it's when the government has is something that they're losing, such as when a sunset of an authority happens. That's when you can have a sensible discussion about how to give law enforcement the tools it really needs in this generation and also have the privacy protections updated for this generation. And I think we have to keep doing that with technology. You've done a good job of sort of taking us back, taking us forward. Let's do it on one more issue, which is the review group that you were part of um, in the wake of the Snowden revelations that looked at intelligence and communications technology. What's happened to the recommendations? Where do we stand now? And where do you think we are going to or where do we need to go next? So, you know, I think when, when somebody names a government commission, that's sort of code for saying we're going to postpone this and never do anything. I'm, I'm pretty that, happy. That was actually in, in uh, Bob Gates's book that when you wanted to delay on an issue, create a commission. You know, this time they gave us 90 days to write a report and we came back with a 300-page book. They made a real strategic error because Cass Sunstein, Jeffrey Stone, Richard Clark, and I have all written multiple books. And Michael Morell knew everything about the intelligence community from his time at the CIA. So we went and wrote a book in 90 days. So as delay goes, it wasn't very effective. What I think was effective is we made a bunch of recommendations, about 70% of which we've been told by the administration had been adopted. And as government work goes, that's better than average for commissions. Our book's been republished by Princeton University Press. So it seemed to have a good effect. The USA Freedom Act, and I've written a blog post on this, every major provision in it, the sort of change in NSA powers, is directly traceable to one of our recommendations, often with the same language. So it's not that we were uniquely anything. It's that I think we had enough different parts of the puzzle in our group that when people wanted to have something to coalesce around, it was something people felt they could coalesce around. There are some parts that haven't been picked up. We uh, advocated for very clear endorsement of strong encryption across the government. And clearly, that's not where Mr. Comey has come out. And, and so I hope that, that we come back to that. We also pushed for changes in the structure of NSA, specifically getting to a point where we split off cyber command, a military activity from the signals intelligence part of the NSA. That has not happened. Admiral Rogers is head of both of them. But I think there's reason to believe over time the goal would be to split off the, the war fighting capacity from the intelligence capacity. 
capacity. And I think that's sensible to prevent too much power accumulating in the intelligence side. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Okay. A pleasure to be here. Thanks again to Peter for joining us. Up next, we'll have our interview with Rick Howard. He's the chief security officer for Palo Alto Networks. He also spent 23 years in the U.S. Army focusing on information technology and computer security. I interviewed him out in Las Vegas for the Black Hat Cybersecurity Conference. We talked about economic espionage, if private companies should be allowed to hack back when they're attacked, and whether cyber threat information sharing will be effective. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. And so why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what your job entails. Okay, I'm the uh, Chief Security Officer for Palo Alto Networks. I have three jobs, basically. Uh, Oversight of the internal security program internally in the company, so both physical and cyber-wise. I'm in charge of the cyber threat intelligence team that we call Unit 42. Uh, And the third thing I get to do is just kind of go around the world and talk to security professionals just about security, not about Palo Alto security, but just security. And I've been doing that for about two years now, and it's been uh, an eye-opener. Okay, I feel like I've got another master's degree by talking to all these people because everybody does it differently. Everybody has a good reason to do it differently, and it's been a learning experience. What's the most surprising thing you've learned from them? Uh, that we're, as a whole, the community is not nearly as good as we think we are. Huh. Most of us are not very good at all, I would say. There's some high-end organizations like the financial institutions and the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. Those guys are pretty mature, but they're about 3% of us, and everybody else is struggling to get it all done, right, and with a limited pool of resources. So I do uh, want to go back a little bit further, and you have a military background. You spent 23 years in information technology and computer security in the Army, and you worked at the Army's computer emergency response team. I did. So tell me about that, and what was it What was it like in the early days of computer security in the Army? Do you have what? a story? Oh, yeah, I got a great you story. Share? You're going to love the story, especially some of the if you're a sci-fi geek, right? Okay. Because before I, I was the commander of the Army computer emergency response team, uh, before it was that, it was the Army's Information Dominant Center. And nobody in the Army knew what that was, okay? But we knew we were that cyber was going to be big, and we wanted VIPs to come in there to be impressed and to give us money to do cool stuff. So the guy in charge of building the Army Information Dominant Center said, you know what, I don't want it to be Dilbert City. I don't want a bunch of cubicles in here. I want it to look sci-fi and techie. So he says, I'm going to build the bridge to the Starship Enterprise. For our place, right? So he goes out to Paramount Studios and he says, I want to build the bridge to the Starship Enterprise. He says, no, no, you guys can't do that. It's copyrighted. And where is this? this is- it's in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Okay. okay. It's still there, by the way. All right. And so uh, they said, you can't. We'll give you the designer that designed the set for the next generation TV show. Of course. So the dominant center is big screen in the front, captain's chair that I got to sit in a lot, side panels where all the people are working, a raised platform. Where Worf would stand, you know, Worf from the next generation, he, he's smiling over there, right? And then behind Worf, behind that raised platform is a conference room with glass doors that open and close. And I swear, we built a sound effect in that went like that, just like the old TV show. Okay, it was so much fun working there. I felt like I was in a B movie every time I came to work. I mean, that sounds pretty awesome. Is that awesome. still is that still around? It's still there. It doesn't really do that mission anymore, but it's still there, and people still come there to see it. Yeah, huh. yeah. So. Didn't expect you to go there. That's, <laughs> that's learn something new every day. Um, you so, asked if, how we were breaking yeah. ground, right? I, it was during that time when we started to realize that there were really people behind the attacks, mm-hmm. right? And we started tracking adversaries by group and by campaign, right? You can look up Titan Rain in, on Google when you go home tonight. 
That was the secret code name that we called all Chinese cyber espionage back in the early 2000s, right? Mm -hmm. We just figured out that it was a, the Chinese government doing that to us, and we could track them by what they were doing. Before that, we were just kind of blocking nefarious bad guys, nefarious tools. It was then that we started to realize that there were actually people behind those attacks, and we started tracking them that way. And so it's something I always like hearing these stories from the early days of computer security, too, because you have the security systems of protecting computers from sprinklers and yeah. things like that. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of and the mindset within the military and how that's evolved and how you see some of these things playing out today? Cyber kind of straddles that line okay, between espionage and warfare. Right. Because we're talking about warfare and defense now, not offense. I'm just talking about defensive right. measures. Right. So and they're still struggling with it. the military is still struggling with those concepts. Right. Who's in charge? Uh, when does it go from espionage to warfare? What is the war, what is the role of a defender versus an offensive player? I mean, yeah. they're still struggling with all that. No, and it's interesting you bring that up because there is this debate in Washington about um, whether or not the U.S. should engage in economic espionage, and the U.S. government insists that it does not do that for moral reasons and does not you know use the military or intelligence apparatus to gather trade secrets from other countries for the benefit of the private sector, but. A lot of countries have and, and still do. So, I mean, what do you think? Is it a good idea or a bad idea for the U.S. to get involved in this? I think it's just strange because we're talking about cultures here, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese don't have a line there. It's because their culture doesn't have a line. They think all espionage is for the good of the state. There's no economic espionage in state espionage. It's, it's just espionage, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and other countries have similar views. It's a, weird, it's a very strange thing for the U.S. to have that and draw the line there. We will spy on you when it has to do with state secrets, but we won't spy on you when uh, it comes to uh, economic advantage. It's a, and the other countries look at us like we're just completely crazy, right? So uh, it's a culture thing. And so from the perspective of being at a private company, do you wish that you had that kind of information? Would it be helpful no. to you? No, no, we, we don't want that. I mean, American companies you know, are innovators, and we want to build our own stuff, right? But I can see where other countries who may not be as advanced may want to use that as a lever, okay? So I just think it's weird that we, have, we draw the line there, and it could be so many other places. And companies are also targets of this kind of economic sure. espionage that's launched by other countries. So and do you think that U.S. companies should be able to take action themselves to hack back and steal stolen, you know, the data that was stolen for them or otherwise retaliate to stuff, these kinds of attacks? No, it's just a hugely bad idea, okay, because uh, I had an old Army boss of mine say, you know what, the enemy gets a vote, right? Just because you decide to hit back. Doesn't mean that you think, what is he going to, the bad guy's going to, oh, he hit back. I guess I should go be a plumber now, right? No, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to probably make him really angry and bring a world of hurt on your organization. So, civilian organizations should not even go close to that. Law enforcement, maybe, okay, and maybe a military and a warfare operation, but those things need to be very carefully considered. Is that tough, though, to watch something like this take place or watch, you know, attacks come on your company and just not be able to do anything? Or is, do you feel like law enforcement and the government in general are responsive enough to be able to deal with them? No, I, I, I'm, I'm not frustrated by that because I think that's a defensive thing that we can do. And, we, and you can prevent bad guys from getting into your network, okay? It is possible to do. Uh, with all the stuff you read in the newspapers and uh, on the radio and TV, you think it's doing you know, like There's no way to stop a bad guy. That's not true. We can stop 95% of things going on, right? And that's just basic best practices that most security organizations should have in place, right? It's the 5% we have to worry about. And uh, so we have to detect those guys earlier, get them out quicker, okay? But I'm okay with our security posture inside Palo Alto. I'm not saying we're not going to get attacked. Right. Of course we could, all right? I'm just saying that we can block most of it, and I'm, I have no interest in trying to do any kind of <laughs> offensive uh, capability. 
So another thing that's come up a lot in Washington is this issue of information sharing. And it's been a big priority of the Obama administration and many in Congress to try to streamline this exchange of threat information between the government and the private sector. And it's seen as a way to really help safeguard the country's computer networks. What do you think about this issue, though? I mean, we spoke recently for a piece in Passcode about some of this chatter in the private sector from security officials who say that there's more talk about what companies can give to the government about the threats that they see, you know, all of these things that you're detecting right. versus what is actually coming back to be useful information um, to help you in your business. Can you walk me through this issue and where you think the debate is now mm-hmm. and should be? Sure. I mean, let's just let's take the government off the table for a second. I absolutely believe that information sharing is the secret sauce to help all of us get ahead of the advanced adversary. Okay, there's no reason when we're not helping each other out with this. Okay, so I'll just state that up front. The second thing, though, is that uh, you're right in that some, the government, many governments, would like lots of companies to share their threat intelligence with them. And what's happened in the U.S. and in other countries is that they're very they're not used to giving the information back. Because once you put information into the government system, it gets classified, it gets wrapped up in all kinds of legal stuff, and it never comes back out again, right? This is the classic, too, intelligence dilemma that has been in our industry since the very beginning of time. Defenders want to stop bad guys, stop the pain. Okay, guys like me want to, I just want, here's the block, they can't come in anymore. Intelligence people want to watch the adversary. You know, if they get a beat on him, okay, they say, oh, there he is. Now I can watch him. I can see what he's doing. I can see what he's doing. And maybe make some projections about what he's going to do next. And those two philosophies don't go together. Those are in tension with each other. Yeah. Right? And it's been going on since the early days. Since the early, since the late 80s, it's been in that situation where right-minded organizations give me, uh, information to the government and the government doesn't really give stuff back. It's gotten better in the years, okay? There are mechanisms for classified intelligence to come out of the government and into private hands. There's ways to get that done. But it's very cumbersome, hard to manage, and not everybody gets it. Okay, So uh, I don't think that helps everybody. That helps some very certain, specified, advanced organizations. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because everybody does have different motivations, whether you're in the government or if you're an intelligence official or if you're in a private company. But you are seeing some really effective sharing, from what I've heard, um, within the private sector. And your company co-founded the Cyber Threat Alliance with Symantec and Intel Security. So tell me a little bit about that because that's not something that needs legislation to make it happen. No, and I I think that private companies can do this on our own. We don't need help from the government, right? But the Cyber Threat Alliance is potentially a game changer if we can get this right, right? Security vendors have been slow to the game on information sharing, mainly because we think that's our secret sauce, right? Mm-hmm. We, you're gonna, we'll give it to you, but you're going to have to pay for it. That's been the way it has been for you know, 20, 25 years, all right? But uh, the Cyber Threat Alliance was founded by four like-minded CEOs. So it's Palo Alto Networks, it's Semantic, it's Fortinet, and it's uh, Intel McAfee. They all think that we all should have the same intelligence, okay? And we should share it freely with each other. It's not about the intelligence you collect. They all believe it's what you do with the intelligence once you get it, right? So if we all have the same intelligence. We can innovate on our own product set to make it better without having to worry, well, you're going to buy a product just because you think his intelligence collection is better. So they started the Cyber Threat Alliance uh, almost a year and a half ago now. We've been sharing threat intelligence with each other for about a year. Just like any kind of information sharing organization, it took us a while to get used to each other. We had to learn to trust each other. We had to build some infrastructure so we could do this efficiently, but we've been doing it now for a fairly decent amount of time. Has it been working well? It's working well, but it's a small pilot. All right, so um, what we have now is a stable environment, and everybody agrees that this is a thing that should be done. 
And we brief the founding CEOs about every six months on the status of where we are, right? And we just briefed these guys last month. And they gave us the very specific task is, where do we take it from here? Okay, and here's what we think we can do. We want to share adversary campaign information with anybody in the alliance. Meaning we want to share indicators of compromise for all the groups that are out there that are attacking uh, various victims out there, right? And we think that if we get enough uh, vendors into the Cyber Threat Alliance, we're going to reach a tipping point. And that number is between 25 and 50 vendors, where every organization on the planet that connects to the Internet will have at least one of us in their network protecting their stuff. So if we are sharing indicators of compromise for all the campaigns that we know, right, in real time, we have potentially have the ability to get in, to inside the uh, in, uh, adversary's uh, operational loop. So from your perspective, would you even need the U.S. government's help for any information? They can supplement it, or they can supplement it, giving us more stuff that we don't know, right? Because this is not a one-time thing. Intelligence is something you do all the time. Bad guys are going to change their behaviors, and so we're going to have to go figure that out. But it is something that could be done. So here's the question I ask everybody, though. How many campaigns do you think there are? How many bad guy campaigns are there? So there's activism, there's warfare, there's espionage, there's crime. Probably something I don't remember right now, okay? So how many campaigns are out there? Is it a million? No. Is it 100,000? I don't think so. It's probably 3,000 to 5,000, okay? Not that many, right? And I can track 5,000 things in a spreadsheet. The point is, is that this is a doable thing to, to manage. And if we get the right vendors in the alliance, then it could be uh, very beneficial to the entire internet. Right? Now, this is pretty lofty thinking. I mean, you know, big thinking. Oh, it's, I'm going to save the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great idea. All right, we got some stuff we have to figure certainly out. Ambitious. It's certainly ambitious. And when we briefed the CEOs last month, they said, "Oh, prove it. Pick one campaign. All right, and see if you guys collectively can disrupt that campaign better than you can individually." And they gave us 90 days to do it. So we have to report back to them in October. So we picked a campaign, put our four best analysts on it from the four main companies. And in three weeks, I already have enough intelligence to disrupt that campaign. Right. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it. So as chief security officer of a major company, you run a lot of stuff. You see a lot of different threats and um, are working on ways to manage them, of course. You might have heard about this small breach in the government, that the Office of Personnel well, Management. I've never heard of it. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that, of course, you know, really shined a light on these issues there. And so let's say tomorrow President Obama says, Rick... I have a job for you. I would like you to run cybersecurity in the government. What would you do? What would be the first or second step that you would take just to, you know, rearrange the cybersecurity issues? And what would be the most important thing that the government needs to do at this time? There's two things I would say about that. One is that if President Obama gave me that job, all right, that means the priority has gone to that risk of the organization, of the government, right? Because up to this point, that has not been the priority. Or at least leaders of those organizations have not felt that they needed to prioritize security over other things they needed to work on. So now that we have a mandate, what I would do, the first step is to recognize that basic blocking and tackling for cybersecurity is possible and implement that in every government organization. Meaning prevent as many threats as you possibly can. Because you can, right? You can absolutely do it, right? Step two. Step three is then build that infrastructure so that we can detect new stuff quickly and then eradicate it efficiently as we discover it. Those three things, that's it. That is the, that is the essentials of being a security person, okay? 
Block as much as you can, detect new stuff, get rid of it. Okay, that's, it's it. It's not hard. And with the track record of the government as it is right now, how long do you think it would take to get the government in shape you know, and get those grades up from pretty low grades yeah. to better ones? Uh, you can make a, a substantial improvement within a year. Okay. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it can be any vendor solution. I'm not trying to advocate any particular one. Right? But as long as you're consistent with what you're trying to do. It'd probably take five years until people thought it was a mature organization, if you could do that. And the priority was that you needed to do that still. Because, you know, government, they lose focus. You know, it'll be, something else will be more important next year. So I do want to ask you some uh, more industry-specific questions. What do you think a cybersecurity company is going to look like five years from now? How will the threats change and how will companies be adapting to, to that? A cybersecurity company or just yes. a company reacting to those threats? A cybersecurity company. Like ours? Like Palo yes. Alto? I think that what the industry has learned in the last decade, I'll just say what security vendors have done to us. They built these really cool products, and they're really fantastic, but they're point products, and they don't talk to each other, right? So in my last job, I was a CISO of a government contractor. I had 14 point products in four different networks, and all that data was coming back to a 24 by 7 SOC, and we were finding bad guys. That's what we were doing. It was really expensive. Okay, when you buy a point product and deploy it in your organization, you're paying for it three times. You're paying for the initial purchase of the box. You're going to pay for a person to maintain it, okay, just to keep it running. And you're going to pay for a person that can understand the data coming off of it. Okay, you probably pay for it a fourth time too by correlating that data coming off of that box with all the other boxes that you have. So here's the thing. Here's what a security company is going to look like in the next five years. We are building systems of systems that handle all that stuff for the customer. Remember that 95% of the customers can't do big things, right? They don't have the resources, they don't have the money, they don't have the people. We're gonna see systems of systems from vendors that kind of do all that for them and can be managed in one box with all the services that you need. Okay, that's where I think it's going. Interesting. And so with all the investment and attention right now on cybersecurity, do you think that there's a cybersecurity bubble? Where is this all gonna fall down? I don't think so. Well, certain companies are going to fall, I, I believe. There's some bubbles out there, I think, for certain companies. But I don't think the industry is going to fall. I don't, like, it's, good to be one, it's good to be a chief security officer. I don't think the business is going away anytime soon. Well, so where, which type of companies do you think are the most vulnerable? You know, oh, I don't want to guess on here. I'm getting a lot of trouble, right? Maybe but, not naming names, but what kind of, you know, what things will become less relevant over time? I just, I'll say this. We basically use the same technology to defend our network for 20 years. Firewall, antivirus, intrusion detection, right? And bad guys got a lot better, and those products haven't gotten better with them. Those kinds of products, point products too, those things are going to start to fade away as being the basics for most security organizations. And other things will replace them. I have no idea what those will be, but other things will. You've worked with emerging talent in this field. You taught computer science at the U.S. Military Academy in the 1990s. And right now, the military is trying really hard to staff up its cybersecurity forces. And apparently, the FBI was only able to hire one-third of the cyber positions that it was authorized to. And there's not exactly a cybersecurity unemployment line. So how can the government compete with what private companies are offering? And how do you see the competition for talent playing out? Uh, it's going to be huge. The competition is going to be huge. And you're right, we can pay those people a lot more than the government can. But let me tell you about an initiative I think are promising, right? Mm-hmm. We're working with the U.S. Army to kind of partner with training individuals. Uh, the Army has a reserve component. They need cyber guys. We have people in our company that need to be cyber trained. 
if we partner together and bring in a university as kind of a third leg to this to kind of sharpen the sword for those individuals in our field. So they'd work in the Army in their field, they'd come to Palo Alto, they'd work in their field, and then they'd go to, we'd work together to send them back to school to get smarter about whatever they're supposed to be doing. This is happening now? It's in discussion now. It's one of the ideas of how we could do this better, right? So, uh, and that's a good idea. It's a really powerful idea to work together on this. I think the second thing is, maybe not for the military or the government, but we need to start thinking about training people a lot earlier than we are right now. We probably pick these guys up in college, and it's probably too late. Okay, We need to pick them up in high school. And so just one last most important question, just to circle back to where we originally started with your your science uh, (laughs) fiction-themed story from your military days. What is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Oh, in in fiction? Yeah, favorite as in, you know, it's so terrible that you love to hate it, or favorite as in you you just love it, actually. So in fiction, in books, the best hacker novel of all time. Okay. Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Okay. okay. By all time, all right? Now, you have Strong to... Strong com- endorsement. Yes, you have to commit to this book, though. It's a thousand pages, okay? Oh. And it is dense with ideas. Not a beach it's, You are not going to get through this in a weekend, all right? Okay. But it's a multi-generational story, World War II, dot-com of the 90s, same family. It's a gold treasure hunt. There's three love stories. It's warfare. It's dot-com of the... I mean, it's fantastic, all right? Our podcast listeners can't hear this can't see this, but your face is just filled with <laughs> such sheer excitement that I feel like I have to get started on this 1,000 Get on it right away. If you want something that's so bad it's good, uh, CSI Cyber is in that mode. Okay. I mean, it's just awful. Okay, it's just really awful. Do you hate watch it? Or? Uh, no, I don't hate We watched a couple of them because uh, we just have to, you know. You couldn't. You couldn't, you couldn't just do couldn't it stand it anymore, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> You're really welcome. appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again to Peter Swire for a great conversation and to Rick Howard for joining us this month. And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. And be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.